God bless and welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. Go to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. We read in verse uh, 25, it says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Matthew Poole states in his commentary, This one verse is an abridgment of the whole gospel. Clearer words have never been spoken. For what we have in verse 25 of the fourth chapter of Romans is the purpose and accomplishment of God sending His Son to this world. It was for us then that Jesus was delivered to the cross, and for us then that by Christ being raised from the dead, we have been justified. Jesus Christ coming to deliver men from their offenses, even as He was Himself by men delivered to the cross. The Savior allowing Himself, because it was God's will, to be delivered by sinners for ironically, the sinner's justification. Thus, every step of the Lord Jesus in His being delivered to die on the cross was so that we might be saved from what the death of the cross signified, sinners being put to death for their sin. How wonderful then it is to see that by God's grace, the sin and death that had held man since the early days of His creation has been broken by the death and resurrection of God's Son. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 now. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Such love was, therefore, in the Son of God, that he offered himself for the sins of man. Benson on this verse. Who his own self in his own person, and by the sacrifice of himself and not of another. Bear our sins, that is the punishment due them, in his afflicted, torn, dying body on the tree. The cross, whereon chiefly slaves or servants were wont to suffer. The apostle alludes to Isaiah 53, 12. He bare the sins of many. The phrase bearing sin is often used in the Old Testament it signifies sometimes the making of atonement for sin, sometimes the suffering punishment for sin, and sometimes the carrying away sin from the sight of God, as the scapegoat is said to do. The apostle uses here the first person, our sins, to show that Christ bare the sins of the believer in every age and in country, and to make us sensible how extensive the operation of his death is in procuring pardon for sinners, end quote. Uh, how many are then who through given an opportunity of having their sins removed still resist Jesus as their Lord, who have a chance at gaining peace with God and an eternal life beyond this temporal life, but instead choose to remain in their sinful state? The great amount of this world's population more than satisfied in their separation from God and remarkably also the eternal spiritual life God offers to men. This, though, is not the Christian position, as the church is humbly willing to receive Christ's death for their sin and will then gladly and wholeheartedly glorify God because of it. To help us more deeply perceive Christ being delivered to the cross and dying for a sin, let us study the journey of Christ, whereby also by the hands of sinners, Jesus was delivered to die for our sin. Let's go to John chapter 18 now and in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook, Cedron, where was a garden 
into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Apostates know the way and manner of saints, for they have walked with them. They have partaken of eating and worshiping together, and they fully know the manner in which they live. Apostates also, because of hate in their hearts, will always use their knowledge of the saved to try and inflict hurt upon the very ones they once claimed to share fellowship with. Judas, therefore, knew where Jesus would be because he had been with him there before. Thus, with the knowledge of where Jesus could be found, Judas led the Roman soldiers and those with them to capture the Son of God. Jesus being delivered for our sins begins here. Verse 3. John 18.3 Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Barnes on this verse. This was the time of the full moon, but it might have been cloudy, and their taking light with them shows their determination to find him, end quote. Lanterns and torches were needed, as evil men will always do their best to commit their unscrupulous deeds in the dark of the night. Here Judas, in a short time of triumph, because of the control he now felt he had, also gains the importance he undoubtedly always lusted after. Small men therefore will, because they have no great work of themselves, will try and tear and tear down the work of another. John 13, 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. This is Judas. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Teaching us that they who cannot be recognized because of their good character will often resort to seeking to be famous by other means. The desire for importance is therefore so strong in some men that they will do evil to gain it. Sinners so lusting for power and to reach the levels they think they deserve will be willing to betray even those whom they have eaten and shared fellowship with. The dark side of man revealing itself to so love power and influence that he will betray even the very essence of light. John chapter 18 verse 4 now. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Those sinners will stealthily move in the dark. Those of the light will be enlightened by God to know their plans and purposes. Gill on this verse. Jesus knowing all things and being the omnipotent God, so his knowledge reaches to all persons and things without any limitation and restriction, though here it has regard to all the things that should come upon him, even all the suffering he should endure, which were all determined by God, agreed to him by him in the covenant of grace, predicted in the Old Testament, and foretold by himself. He knew all the circumstances that would attend his sufferings, as that he should be betrayed by Judas, 
be forsaken by the rest of the disciples, that the Jews would give him gall and vinegar in his thirst, and the soldiers part his garments among them. He knew the time of his sufferings, and that it was now at hand, and that Judas and his company were not far off. And therefore he went forth out of the garden, or at least from that part of it where he was, and his disciples with him. This was done to show his willingness to suffer. He went forth of his own accord. He did not hide himself in the garden as the first Adam did. He did not stay till those that sought his life came up to him. He went forth, not to make his escape from them, but to meet them and to make himself known unto them. And saith unto them, Whom seek ye? This question was put, not out of ignorance, for he knew full well who they were seeking after, nor with a design to deceive them and to make his escape, but to show that he was not afraid of them and that they could not have known him nor have taken him had he not made himself known and offered himself to them and which makes it appear that he was willingly apprehended by them and voluntarily suffered, end quote. To give emphasis to Judas's full and complete unity with Christ's captors, we see that Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. See, none can leave the company of the Son of God and not declare themselves as standing with the enemies of God. Apostates, you will see, will fully betray the faith they once claimed to follow. And leaving God, they will they'll stand with those who work for the devil. Judas, therefore, was not double-minded in his betrayal. Satan had worked it in his heart, and now he was carrying it out, his new master's commands. Judas thus stood with Christ's enemies, first and foremost, because he had become an enemy of God himself. Do not then pity this man for what he did, though he showed later regret, because it was planned and purposed from an evil heart. The jealousy, covetousness, and bitterness that filled this fallen disciple's heart resembling nothing of a true disciple of Christ. Verse 6 of John 18. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Ellicott on this verse. They went backward and fell to the ground. There is nothing in the narrative to suggest that our Lord put forth miraculous power to cause this terror. The impression is rather that it was produced by the majesty of his person and by the answer which to Jewish ears conveyed the utterable name Jehovah I am. Guilt trembled before the calmness of innocence. Man fell to the ground before the presence of God. To Judas the term must have been familiar and have brought back a past which may well have made him tremble at the present. To the officers, the voice came from him of whom they had been convinced before that. Never man spake like this man, John 7, 46. They have come to take him by force, but conscience paralyzes all their intentions, and they lay helpless before him. He will surrender himself because his hour is come, John 17, 1, but his life no one taketh from him, end quote. Fleshly powers will always stagger when it realizes its own weakness, when it comes in contact with true spiritual power. The soldiers here also coming to know very well that if they had not come in a company, 
And if Jesus had not delivered himself into their hands, they would have no power whatsoever to accomplish their mission. It is important to remember as well that evil did not take Jesus, but that Jesus gave himself to his captors only by God's will, who was delivered for our offenses. Verse 7 now. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Pool on this verse. Our Savior's question and their answer are the same as before. They fell down, but they rose up again and go on in their wicked purpose. This is the genius of all sinners. They may be under some convictions and terrors, but they get out of them. If God doth not concur by His Spirit and sanctify them as means to make a thorough change in their hearts, end quote. Sinners, therefore, without repentance to God for their sin, will quickly return to it. And though they may be brought into God's presence for a moment, this time will pass, and they will return to their wayward ways. This is seen in all who choose to live their lives outside of being subject to God, Pharaoh being one of the greatest examples. For though God's power continually broke him, still he returned to his mulish and obstinate way. A determined sinner, therefore, though stunned for a moment with the truth, will again push himself away from it, so that he may continue to satisfy his fleshly desires. A stubborn man also, even if he is illuminated by the Spirit, will not allow himself to be reformed, so that regardless of enlightenment or punishment, those determined to sin cannot be for long taken from their path. Verse 8 now. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Jesus' purpose in identifying whom the soldiers really sought, we can see had for its ultimate purpose to make sure his disciples were removed from physical danger. Christ therefore protected his sheep even as he knew within himself that he had begun the journey to his own death. The Lord walking in love, even when he was about to begin his suffering. Hence, it is not our environment that determines if we walk in the love of God, but only if we are determined to love those whom God has called us to love. Ellicott on this verse. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. It may be that some of the Roman cohort not knowing Jesus, were already laying hands on the disciples. In any case, they are exposed to this danger, and the good shepherd who himself goes forth to meet the danger will shield the flock from it, end quote. Pulpit commentary on this. A deeper reason still. He said this in order that the words which he spake an hour or two before might be fulfilled, not finally exhausted in its unfathomable death, but gloriously illustrated, concerning those whom thou hast given me, not one of them I lost. This is a proof, as recognized by DeWitt and others, that the evangelist was quoting exact words of the master, not words which he had theologically attributed to him. The temporal safety of the disciples was a means on that dread night of saving their souls from death, as well as their bodies from torture or destruction. Christ, says Calvin, 
continually bears with our weakness when he puts himself forward to repel so many attacks of Satan and wicked men because he sees that we are not yet able or prepared for them. In short, he never brings his people into the field of battle till they have been fully trained so that in perishing they do not perish because there is gain provided for them both in death and in life, end quote. Verse 10 now. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Though Peter would later shrink in fear, he did not hear. Thus we see a glimpse of courage in one of Jesus' most beloved disciples. Observing as well that it was not the ear that Peter aimed to take off Malchus, but his head. And though Peter's actions were impetuous, it was because of his loyalty to Jesus. Adding to this, though Jesus corrected Peter for taking up arms in his defense, there will be a time in the future when Christ will not forbid the help of his friends in overcoming evil, but will give them and us full and complete right to fight on the behalf of righteousness. Jude 1.14 And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. The record of Peter here defending his Lord also teaches us that though a man may have a degree of strength to stand for Christ, without the Holy Spirit, this strength will soon diminish. It took being baptized with the Holy Spirit for the apostles to go from being behind closed doors for fear of the Jews to boldly proclaiming Christ before God's adversaries. So that yes, men may want to stand for God and may for a short time be able to do so on their own. But without the power of the Holy Spirit, this time will be short-lived. Simply because no man can stand continually for the Lord without first God giving him the strength to do so. All true believers thus are upheld both in their character and in their walks by God's power. Isaiah 41.10 Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. No natural man, therefore, has any lasting power to stand for God and defend his name. Without God first providing him with the sufficient internal strength of the Holy Spirit to do so. The flesh is weak, so that only with the powerful influence of God's Spirit can true witnessing for Christ be accomplished. Acts 1 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Thus we can see that for men to truly witness for Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit is a necessity. For only its power and strength is enough to overcome the wickedness in this world. Jesus, therefore, will not himself send any to witness for his name without first supplying them with the spiritual power necessary to be successful. Verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? Jesus, after correcting Peter and demanding he cease with his violence, 
reminds those present that all was being done according to the Father's will. And even as God's presence has been with them, so is God still with them now. For no man can be in God's will and not have God standing with him. Ellicott on this verse. It is the Father to whom he has prayed and solemnly committed the disciples. The Father whose presence never leaves him. The Father into whose hands he is about from the cross to commend his spirit. End quote. Jesus had given himself up according to the Father's will. He had spoken the Father's words, and now he was carrying out the spiritual responsibility that the Father had given him. Hence, just as Jesus' first ministerial words were, How is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my Father's business? What we see here is his being delivered to the cross is the great culmination of that heavenly business. One of the characteristics of God's only begotten Son was his complete subjection to God's will at all times. It should be ours as well if we consider ourselves Christ's followers. For none can go their own way and still think they can remain in God's will. True sons of God, keeping themselves subject first to God's word and then to God's spirit. Jesus' ministry was therefore, more than anything else, a witness of what complete subjection to God looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. It is the holy character of Jesus that even when he accomplishes complete victory over God's enemies, he will return to being subject under God. John chapter 18, verse 12 now. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. It is here, with Jesus being willingly bound, that we see how he was also willing to bear our sins. The soldier's cords, allowing no chance for escape, also representing how Jesus took upon himself the full bondage of sin. For sin doth keep men bound to both commit it, as well as reminds their consciences that death will be the final result because of it, Hebrews 2.15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Sinners thus are as as bound to sin as Jesus was bound here by the soldiers. For no reasonable man will go to death willingly unless first he is bound and has no other choice. Jesus also by being bound represents how he took on all that binds men and leads them to their death. Gill on this verse. They took Jesus and bound him. This they did partly for safety and security, he having several times escaped from them, and partly for contempt and by way of reproach, using him as they would do the vilest of malefactors. And this was submitted to by Christ, that his people might be loosed from the cords of sin, be delivered from the captivity of Satan, and be freed from the bondage of the law. Hereby the types of him were fulfilled, as the binding of Isaac, when his father was going to offer him up and the binding of the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar, who that has read the ceremonies of the sheaf of the firstfruits but must call them to mind 
upon reading this account of the apprehension and binding of Christ and leading him to the high priest. This sheep was fetched from the places the nearest to Jerusalem, particularly from the fields of Kidron. The manner was this. The messengers of the Sanhedrin went out on the evening of the feast day, the 16th of Nisan, and over the brook of Kidron to the adjacent fields, and bound the standing corn in bundles, that it might be the easier reaped. And all the neighboring cities gathered together there, that it might be reaped in great pomp. And when it was dark, one of the reapers says to them, Is the sunset? They say, Yes. And again, Is the sunset? They say, Yes, with the sickle. Shall I reap? They say, Yes, again, with the sickle. Shall I reap? They say, Yes, in this basket. Shall I put it? They say, Yes, again, in this basket. Shall I put it? They say, Yes, if on the Sabbath day, he says to them, Is this Sabbath day? They say, Yes, again, is this Sabbath day? They say, Yes, it was Sabbath day this year. Shall I reap? They say to him, Reap. Shall I reap? They say to him, Reap three times upon everything. Then they reap it and put it in the baskets and bring it to the court where they dry it at the fire. Whoever reads this will easily observe a likeness. The messengers of the great Sanhedrin go to the fields of Kidron in the evening with their sickles and baskets, bind the standing corn, questions and answers pass between them, and the people before they reap, and when they have done, they bring the sheaf in their baskets to the court to be dried at the fire. So the officers of the high priest with others pass over the brook Kidron with lanterns, torches, and weapons. In the night, go into the garden. There, apprehend Jesus. Questions and answers pass between them there. Then they lay hold on him, bind him, and bring him to the high priest, end quote. Verse 13. And led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible, and led him away in that hour, says Matthew, and probably now on the way to judgment when the crowds were pressing upon him, quote, said Jesus to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me, end quote, expressive of the indignity which he felt to be thus done to him, quote, I sat daily with you in the temple and you laid no hold on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, end quote. How ironic that men who should die for their own sin were the main culprits in orchestrating Christ's death. Hebrews 9, 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Adam sinned, which caused the judgment of death. We are the same without Christ paying the price for our sin. For all who sin have received from God an appointment to die. All men, therefore, have been appointed to both death and judgment because of sin. Barnes on this verse. That death is the result of appointment, Genesis 3.19, is not the effect of chance or haphazard. It is not a debt of nature. It is not the condition to which man was subject by the laws of his creation. It is not to be accounted by the mere principles of psychology. 
God could, as well, have made the heart to play forever as for 50 years. Death is no more the regular result of physical laws than the guillotine and the gallows are. It is all, in all cases, the result of intelligent appointment and for an adequate cause. Two, that cause, or the reason of that appointment, is sin. This is the adequate cause. This explains the whole of it. Holy beings do not die. There is not the slightest proof that an angel in heaven has died or that any perfectly holy being has ever died except the Lord Jesus. In every death, then, we have a demonstration that the race is guilty. In each case of mortality, we have an affecting memento that we are individually transgressors. Death occurs but once in this world. It cannot be repeated if we should desire to have it repeated. Whatever truths or facts then pertain to death, whatever lessons is calculated to convey, pertains to as an event which is not to occur again. That which is to occur but once in an eternity of existence acquires. From that very fact, if there were no other circumstances, an immense importance. What is to be done but once, we should wish to be done well. We should make all proper preparation for it. We should regard it with singular interest. If preparation is to be made for it, we should make all which we expect ever to make. A man who is to cross the ocean but once, to go away from his home never to return, should make the right kind of preparation. He cannot come back to take what he has forgotten, to arrange what he has neglected, to give counsel which he has failed to do, to ask forgiveness for offenses for which he has neglected to seek pardon. And so on death, a man who dies, dies but once. He cannot come back again to make preparation if he has neglected it, to repair the evils which he has caused by a wicked life, or to implore pardon for sins for which he has failed to ask forgiveness. Whatever is to be done with reference to death is to be done once for all before he dies. Death occurs to all. It is appointed unto men, to the race. It is not an appointment for one, but for all. No one is appointed by name to die, and not an individual is designated as one who shall escape. No exception is made in favor of youth, beauty, or blood. No rank or station is exempt. No merit, no virtue, no patriotism, no talent can purchase freedom from it. In every other instance which goes out against people, there may be some hope of reprieve. Here, there is none. We cannot meet an individual who is not under sentence of death. It is not only the poor wretch in the dungeon, doomed to the gallows who is to die, it is the rich man in his palace, the frivolous trifler in the assembly room, the friend that we embrace and love, and she whom we meet in the crowded salon of fashion with all of the graces and accomplishments of adorning. Each one of these is just as much under sentence of death as the poor wrench in the cell, and the execution on any of them may occur before his. It is too for substantially the same cause, and it is as really deserved, it is for sin that all are doomed to death. And the fact 
that we must die should be a constant remembrance of our own guilt. As death is to occur but once, there is cheering interest in the reflection that when it is past, it is past forever. The dying pang, the chill, the cold sweat are not to be repeated. Death is not to approach us often. He is to be allowed to come to us but once. When we have once passed through the dark valley, we shall have the assurance that we shall never tread its gloomy way again. Once then, let us be willing to die, since we can die but once. And let us rejoice in the assurance which the gospel furnishes, that they who die in the Lord leave the world to go where death in any form is unknown. End quote. Verse 14 now. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the sins of the people. Barnes on this verse, who gave counsel. This is referred to here probably to show how little prospect there was that Jesus would have justice done to him in the hands of a man who had already pronounced on the case. End quote. There would be no chance of reprieve for Jesus once he was taken into captivity. So like the sin that binds the sinner, without divine intervention, escape is impossible. Whenever also evil gains control, neither fairness nor mercy should be expected. The verdict of Christ's death, therefore, had already been premeditated once Judas had conspired to betray his Lord. The Jews, therefore, had been conspiring very early in Christ's ministry to seek to put him to death. Hence now, when the opportunity and power lay in their hands, through the puppets they also controlled, only formalities remained before their evil intentions were accomplished. The Gospel of Matthew records how the Pharisees had previously summoned a council to formulate a way whereby they could destroy Christ. Matthew 12, 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Barnes on this verse. The Pharisees held a council. Mark adds that the Herodians also took a part in this plot. They were probably a political party attached firmly to Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, Tetrarch of Galilee. He was the same man who had imprisoned and beheaded John the Baptist, and to whom the Savior, when arraigned, was sent by Pilate. He was under Roman authority, and he was a strong advocate of Roman power. All the friends of the family of Herod were opposed to Christ, and ever ready to join any plot against his life. They remembered doubtless, the attempts of Herod the Great against him when he was the babe of Bethlehem, and they were stung with the memory of the escape of Jesus from his bloody hands. The attempt against him now, on the part of the Pharisees, was the effect of envy. They hated his popularity, they were losing their influence, and they therefore resolved to take him out of the way." End quote. Thus we can see that early on in Christ's ministry, the religious leaders of the day sought to take the life of the Son of God. Now, since Jesus was firmly in their hands, their plans would be fulfilled. Verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. 
Verse 17, Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou not also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. Peter and the other disciple followed Jesus, but not sufficiently enough so as not to be out of sight and beyond recognition. The damsel who questioned Peter is not said to be of any significant person, yet Peter denied he knew Jesus to her, teaching us that it can take the smallest situations for men to deny association with the Son of God, so that if the fire gets hot enough, it will take little for professors of Christ to become deserters of Christ in his ministry. Peter's denial of Jesus was not simply his person, but also Christ's entire ministry to save man and do good for them. Hence we see how men can, when pressured by the world, and having not the Spirit of Christ to strengthen them in their temptation, deny the faith they once embraced. But it is also worth considering that if any lack the strength to openly confess Christ before his enemies, there is little chance that salvation has yet been truly gained. Peter would be baptized with the Holy Spirit later and would never again make this same mistake. Denial of the Lord also a very good sign that men have not as yet received the Spirit of the Lord. Man's weak and feeble nature, therefore, without God's Spirit, cannot undergo the trials of faith that await every true Christian. This was Peter's first denial of Christ, and it was a flat and strong denial. For he saith, I am not. Matthew's account gives us another short and abbreviated synopsis of Peter's denial of Christ. Matthew 26, verse 70 now. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him, they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. First, Peter denied that he knew what was said. I know not what thou sayest, verse 70. Then he denied by swearing an oath that he did not know the man, verse 72. And then he continued his adamant denial of Jesus when he began to curse and to swear, again forcibly reiterating with strong emotion, I know not the man. Jesus had prophesied that Peter would deny him, and so he did. This denial of Peter can teach us other great important lessons. That those who deny Christ must continue down a path of lies, so that only when men have the courage to align themselves with the Son of God will the full courage to speak truth emerge. Walking in the light and being completely honest as to who you really are, therefore only fully achieved when first there is an open and forthright confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord. Thus those who have neither the courage nor the faith to confess Jesus before men will also lack the strength to confess other important truth as well. The path to the cross for our Lord proving to be a lonely one, yet not nearly as lonely as when a sinner must walk to death on his own. So that though great empathy should be felt for Christ's journey to the cross to die for our sins, a far greater emotion should arise for when we consider the fact that men will have to die for their own sin. 
the path then of someone who has rejected God and refused to submit to his rule in their life will be when they face death a much more horrific experience. We would hope then that sinners realize the great danger it is to face death alone. Verse 18 now. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Whenever a man denies Jesus, he is left with being in the company of those who have no affection for heavenly things. Denying Christ that puts men in a position of the company of the ungodly and unrighteous. The symbolism also here is sufficient to show us that though outside fires may be used to hold off the night and its chill, there is nothing a man can do if he truly forsakes Christ to ever again feel the warmth of his spirit. Thus neither a beautiful house nor a large bank account can be substituted for the emptiness that men will feel with rejection of the Savior. As there will be no time that men will feel more alone than when they leave the faith. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I have said. It is common for the unrighteous and ungodly to question both the persons and doctrines of the righteous. Jesus' example of being interrogated by sinners shows us then how corrupt a world we live in when evil will self-righteously think it has the right to interrogate light. This evil world thinking itself superior to even the king who shall reign over it. The darkness in men also prohibiting them from seeing that they are not the superiors to any who truly love God. Barnes on this. Why askest thou me? Ask them. Jesus here insisted on his rights and reproves the high priest for his unjust and illegal manner of exhorting a confession from him. If he had done wrong or taught erroneous and seditious doctrines, it was easy to prove it. We may learn here that though Jesus was willing to be reviled and persecuted, yet he also insisted that justice should be done him. He was conscious of innocence, and he had been so open in his conduct that he could appeal to the vast multitudes which had heard him as witnesses in his favor. It is proper for us, when persecuted and reviled, meekly but firmly to insist on our rights and demand that justice shall be done us. Laws are made to protect the innocent as well as to condemn the guilty. Christians, like their Savior, should so live that they may confidently appeal to all who have known them as witnesses of sincerity, purity, and rectitude of their lives. End quote. Verse 22 now. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. This is the first blow that Jesus received from those who sought his life, though there would be many others following it. Whether the blow consisted of either the hand of the soldier or his rod is uncertain from Scripture. 
But what is certain is that it was personal and meant to demean Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses. Christ was hated, therefore, not because of any wrong in himself, but only because he taught and pointed out the great separation there exists between God and man. John 15, 25. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled, that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. For nothing will cause consternation in an evil man more than being exposed to a good man. There was therefore much hatred that had been stored up towards Jesus, and it was just beginning to unfold.